Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 58, the present is always in the past. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner. With me as always is my co-host, Chris Padgett. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Josh. How are we doing today anyway? Well, we're one week into the semester. I mean, not even one. Yeah, we're one week through. We're in the second week of the semester. So we're back working doing our actual jobs that we get paid for, but we always love to find some time to record these episodes. Not as much as we used to be able to find time, but we're we're still doing our best to get some, uh, get the mics out, put the headphones on and, and record some quality content for our listeners. Well, we're trying to let history catch up with us. I think we raced so far ahead that we realized we better uh, slow it down. Yep. Uh, And as I'm happy uh, to share, and I know you are as well today, share with our listeners uh, we have some history uh, that has caught up with us. We're going to be discussing uh, on today's uh, episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let our update for our uh, listeners. You are back again on campus, uh, teaching two days a week, a couple of classes, right, uh, and the rest online. I am for at least this next semester still entirely online. But uh, as it appears now, we may rendezvous uh, back in the brick and mortar institution known as our campus uh, for the first time, what, since March of 2020. It's wild, yeah, it looks yeah. like at this point, we'll be back uh, for the spring semester. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, yeah, it's my second semester back and like the parking lot's a little fuller this time than than last semester. Like there's there's evidence of life, proof of life on campus a little bit more. But I'm still walking the halls by myself, mostly, uh, you know, running into like other other survivors every once in a while. But um, yeah, it's it's it still does not quite feel like like I'm back back because of the the uh, the, the the ghost town that is our our third floor on Davies Hall. <laughs> you remind me of the guy in the old classic Star Trek episode, and yeah, yes, that's me dating myself. But uh, we're an ancient race of beings that created this very advanced civilization. Uh, but they all died off or left the planet, except for one lonely archivist who was left behind <laughs> forever, maintained the archive that uh-huh. no one could ever see. And that uh, does that pretty much describe how you, you felt last spring there in Davies Hall? Yeah, I like that. But I thought you were going to say I was like one of the red shirts on, you know, in Star Trek, the the, <laughs> the, the poor sacrificial victim who always went down with the, the you know, the main stars. <laughs> it was obviously going to die on whatever planet they're on. Never, uh, never wear a red shirt. Never wear a red shirt. Yeah. If you're not, you know, in the main title sequence, don't wear a red shirt. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's me. I'm just trying to keep the lights on. You know, just trying to make my presence felt a little bit. Somebody actually came into my office the other day, which has not happened in two years. Somebody just like showed up at my door to to say hi, you know, one of my students. So 
Ah. Um, I try not to react with horror and shock. I try to be friendly, uh, but it, it's, you know, it's going to take some time to get back to, uh, to fully integrated, you know, social being that I, I struggled to be even before the pandemic. Well, it is, uh, as I say, history in real time, uh, history in, in its many guises, uh, is, uh, as I say, has been uh, catching up with us. In fact, we're calling today's episode, The Present is Always in the Past. And we'll uh, come to explain, of course, what we mean by that. Uh, but I did want to mention uh, the, uh, you know, the, the element of the past that uh, found us just yesterday with the announcement uh, that Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the one-time uh, general party secretary uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, and then subsequently the first uh, president of what was then the last, what uh, sort of dying breath of the Soviet Union, the mm-hmm. Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, passed away at age 91. Yeah, and I was kind of shocked to realize that I, I, had, I actually had thought he was dead. Like, so the shock for me was, oh, he was alive. And then I realized, oh, no, he's he's now dead. But, um, yeah, just a kind of a towering figure of the 20th century and one that I think, I don't know. Do you, do you think he's he has the kind of, uh, you know, kind of presence in people in people's minds? If you weren't alive, you know, and, and conscious in the late 80s, early 90s, do you think he had has the kind of sway that he once had? Or do you think he's kind of disappeared from consciousness again for those particularly who were not, um, you know, politically aware or historically aware? At, at the moment where he was most relevant. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, in the age of the 24-hour news cycle and, you know, 15 minutes of fame, uh, that uh, uh, largely because he, I think, had stayed uh, more or less, you know, uh, out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, in other words, uh, he had absented himself uh, ever since about, oh, I don't know, maybe the early 2000s uh, in a significant way, uh, probably contributed to that. And uh, in fact, I saw a quote uh, from uh, some young person in uh, Russia, uh, that is present day Russia, who basically said just what you were saying that uh, I, I, I don't even know who that is. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a little different for those of us and I'm I'm here uh, a minute or two older than you, Josh. You know mm-hmm. who who were you know born into the full throes of the Cold War. You know yeah. some of my earliest memories as a you know as a watcher of sports, let's say, uh, you know, or having even a sort of you know dawning awareness of of things going on in the world. Uh, you know, the Cold War was pervasive in our lives, right? And uh, I, 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 <laughs> I, I try to think of ways to get this across to my students sometime when I'm teaching the Cold War. I feel like the old timer who used to tell us what it was like in the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> how things were just much more difficult and, you know, hard times were much harder. Uh, and, uh, you know, we would sort of, you know, listen patiently or, you know, maybe uh, roll our eyes a bit. But, um, you know, maybe that's the curse of living long enough or something, because I started talking about the Cold War, you know, and my students are are very much in that place. And so I, I try to come up with other ways to do it. And I say, well, just, you know, and, and 
sort of an idea of how strange things were because we can talk about the politics, you know, the the military conflicts, uh, you know, the the economic, the ideological, you know, any any number of ways you can define the Cold War, right? But the way I always think of it, you know, is that in 1972 during the Summer Olympics and 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 the 72 Summer Olympics were were unfortunately notable for a number of of uh, crisis moments. Mm. Uh and uh it's it's I, you know, I, I don't know that the, the Olympics ever just, you know, was a uh, kind of, uh, you know, in, innocent, you know, coming together of the globe that its promoters tried to pretend. But if right. whatever vestige of that was was there, it was pretty much torn away in 72, uh, you know, as you saw acts of terrorism, for example, mm-hmm. you know, essentially take take over the games. Right. You know, so from that tragic element to the, you know, the the seemingly ridiculous and i'm thinking now of the gymnastics competition which uh, typically the soviets dominated right um mm. in their their machine like performances uh you know as they as they appeared on the uh, the gymnastics stage you know both the men's team and the women's team but especially the women's team because uh you know given the the, the i guess the the relative cultural norms of east and west and you know, American pop culture and that sort of thing. Here you would see these Soviet women gymnasts seemingly marching onto the gymnastic floor, unsmiling, you know, with mm. a kind of military cadence almost, as if it were a Red Army parade or something, you know, in, in Moscow. Uh, and then they would proceed to dominate the competition, basically. But in 72, it was a, a Soviet gymnast, Olga Corbett, who won a gold medal and I think maybe won, uh, I'd have to check, maybe won the all-around competition, but uh, if memory serves, won the gold medal in the uneven bars. Josh, I think one of your favorite um, elements, right, of the gymnastic. Of course, yeah. And uh, she did something that people in the West were entirely unprepared for after winning. She smiled. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the fact that this made, you know, for great news copy and even headlines is just one measure then of how strange things were. Because, you know, living in the West, you were just conditioned to believe that Soviet athletes never smiled, you Mm -hmm. know. Uh, And even, you know, one of my uh, Russian students uh, a number of years ago at at American River College said, well, you know, some stereotypes are true. We Russians don't smile a lot. (laughs) 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 But Olga Corbett sure did. And that uh, broke straight through that Cold War screen, you know. And and so, okay, so Gorbachev, yeah, uh, look. For for someone of you know of my age who uh, you know born in the 1960s, raised in 1970s, in college in the 1980s, uh, and then grad school, there was this whole cycle you know of of Cold War politics through these seemingly you know ancient and blustering communists you know from mm. Khrushchev uh, to Brezhnev, yeah. and, and then suddenly you get this guy Gorbachev right who comes on initially, first of all, is much younger, much more vital, right? But mm-hmm. then something nobody quite was ready for. I mean, his mentor was this guy named Yuri Andropov, right? Who was who preceded him as general party secretary. Uh, and Andropov had been head of the KGB. And that was Gorbachev's mentor, you know? So you're thinking, okay, you know, what's happening? And I remember I was in a, a college class at the time called Comparative Communist Systems. So this was this was big copy. I mean, this was the history going on right outside the window. And uh, 
and Gorbachev does something entirely unexpected. He smiled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but no, seriously, much more important than that. You know, he eventually ushers in what would be the, uh, you know, the uh, extraordinary, you know, changes. Uh, first through Glasnost, you know, the opening of, um, you know, the kind of repressive, you know, regimes of media and, and discussion uh, in the Soviet Union. And then through famously through his perestroika, which we in the West learned about, you know, meant restructuring. He was going to try to restructure what was essentially a corrupt and, uh, you know, economically failing Soviet model. And of course, you know, having uh, uh, let the uh, that genie out of the bottle as it were, he found it impossible to ever, you know, put it back. So, so the, you know, the epoch, making changes right of of the 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 loss of the eastern bloc the dismantling of the soviet union uh the the famously in 1990 the you know the coming down of the berlin wall um now more than 30 years ago nevertheless in reading the uh you know the obituaries for gorbachev it all came back to me man you know mm -hmm. I mean, this this was a dude or whatever else you might think about him you know and he's and he's not well regarded in memory in in Russia by many no. and even parts of the former Soviet bloc, uh, but whatever else you might say about him, this was a guy who changed the direction of world history. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I was thinking of a, a way that's true, and and that's in in China, um, there was a reformist uh, leader named Hu Yaobang who died, you know, right around the time this was all happening. Um, and that's basically what set off the Tiananmen Square incident. You know, the Tian Tiananmen Square protest is that uh, students took, you know, that moment of mourning for Hu Yaobang to enter the square in the first place. And then that kind of, you know, became this movement for opening the country and all the kind of th stuff. But one of the key moments, well, first of all, Hu, Hu Yaobang was seen as kind of by students as their Gorbachev, right? That he was the guy who was going to mm -hmm. open up China in the way Gorbachev did with the uh, the Soviet Union. But within all this, um, was already scheduled uh, this historic summit where Gorbachev was going to come to China. I believe it was going to, it was the first time the two countries had, uh, you know, had these kind of top leadership discussions since their break in the 1950s. Um, and the, the plan was Gorbachev was going to come in and there was going to be this huge, you know, celebration for him in Tiananmen square. But of course, because the students were occupying the square, that couldn't happen. Uh, they also, were uncomfortable suppressing the movement at that moment because all the foreign press was there for for Gorbachev's uh, arrival, and so in the end they were forced to have this kind of quick uh, um, uh, introduction or or celebration for him at the airport. He literally got the the plane. There's like you know five old Chinese leaders greeting him, and you know uh, and that was it. They just put him in a car and they drove him as far away from Tiananmen Square as they could, <laughs> still get to his destination. But uh, you know his influence in other words plays this huge role in um in countries like china where he was seen as this model for how societies like like china could open up now you know that's not to say as you were suggesting that um he was you know uh, a perfect leader or that he didn't have there was not problems with the way the soviet union was opened up or that he doesn't bear some responsibility for how things turned out uh, ultimately afterward in the country but it's unquestionably the case that, as you said, he has this huge shadow that he cast across the world as a result of, of the choice he made.
um, you know, in in that kind of mid to late eighties into the nineties. Yeah, and I think you know, even though we look at Russia today under Putin, you know, is essentially you know an autocrat who's waging old style imperial war in in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we see even the, the sort of the creeping uh, uh, autocracy and you know some of the former uh, Eastern Bloc, you know, in a country right. like Hungary, for example. Um, nevertheless, uh, the difference between now and then, I think, is you know, is extraordinary. Uh, the fact that there really is no Iron Curtain any longer. There's mm-hmm. a unified Germany. You yeah. know, the Baltic states are all independent. Yeah. Um, most of those Muslim, you know, dominant uh, former Soviet republics like uh, what uh, Azerbaijan. Yeah, Azerbaijan. Yeah, and you know, Chechnya is is continued to, you know, be under the thumb of Russia. But in many cases, those former satellites or or, or Soviet republics or Iron Bloc countries, et cetera, uh, communist bloc countries, you know, have found you know, an, an independent course, a new life, you know, for mm-hmm. better, for, you know, for, for good or ill. I mean, what, you know, yeah. whatever state they may find themselves in now, it's, it's impossible to reimagine what that had all been prior, you know, essentially to, to Gorbachev. Um, right. the, it's just the, the, you know, to use a kind of overworn phrase, you know, the, the paradigm shifted and it yeah. didn't, I mean, look in the West, you know, Francis Fukuyama writes the book, The End of mm-hmm. History, you know, which even at the time, you know, was so heavy handed, a kind of we won the West, won, <laughs> yep. liberal book, history is over. There's nothing left to fight about, you know, was was absurd, of course. But that kind of response, you know, that somehow this now was going to create a new age. And there was a moment, by the way, in, in Russia, you know, when for some reason, Gorbachev decided to take a vacation, you know, to the Crimea. Uh, and he said his Dasha, you know, on the Black Sea, where, you know, the party leaders typically vacationed. Uh, and there's a coup, right? An attempted coup with some of the hardliners among the Soviets. And they come to his Dasha and they basically take him into custody. Mm-hmm. And it's only because Boris Yeltsin, yeah. the former mayor of Moscow, who was a kind of uneasy ally of Gorbachev's only because they both hated the the Soviet, uh, you know, old line Soviet, hard line Soviet guys. Uh, famously, in a moment of high drama, you know, went out into, um, you know, the square out there, you know, in in the Kremlin, and like climbed up on a tank, yeah, you know, uh, and and grabbed a microphone and addressed the the cheering throngs that this coup was broken, mm-hmm. you know, and the the hardliners retreated. Uh, and so you had this moment. I mean, it just the drama of it, you know, the, go back and look at the YouTube videos, the taking down of the Berlin Wall. Are you kidding me? You know, so this was uh, in real time, you know, high drama history. Yeah. And so, yeah, I felt like it caught up to us a bit yesterday with the announcement uh, of, you know, of, of Gorbachev's uh, passing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as we kind of dive further into uh, history, there's a little kerfuffle going on in the past couple of weeks um, as the head of the American Historical Association, uh, the the main professional association for historians in this country, uh, took it upon himself to write his, his monthly column uh, in the Perspectives magazine or the online magazine. 
um, which it turns out was maybe misguided uh, because the reaction was was swift and brutal to uh, Professor Sweet's column. What did you think of it when you read uh, his attempt to uh, talk about the ills of history, of the history discipline, I guess? Well, I was playing catch up a little bit because you were the one that notified me. Yeah, uh, I've been off Twitter, you see. I know. Yeah. Uh, my uh, my therapist said no more Twitter for you, <laughs> and uh, and so I've been off Twitter, and so I didn't it, I didn't catch it uh, until you brought it to my attention. So of course, naturally, I was I was uh, very uh, eager to find out what you know what I'd missed, and uh, you know first of all, some context. You know, this is a guy who, when he was first chosen uh, to be president, uh, you know, of of the association. Uh, I thought was, uh, you know, was encouraging mm-hmm. because here's a guy whose scholarship is really, you know, uh, certainly outside the orbit of, of trad- traditional U.S. history. Uh, right. He does uh, Africa, West Africa, and the African diaspora. The book of his that I had read uh, was a study of uh, slavery in colonial Brazil. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought, great. We, you know, we have somebody outside that America, uh, you know, U.S. centric um, focus uh, who, you know, tends more toward hemispheric or Atlantic world, maybe Africa. You know, and I, and I always I always see that as a, you know, as a good thing for what had for a long, long time. I mean, the AHA has been around since the 1880s. You know, it had been a pretty hidebound uh, organization. You know, and only really in the 1970s, what I think William McNeil, a world historian, was president in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then occasionally since then, uh, I believe uh, our friend and your mentor, Pat Manning. That's right. Yeah. Was uh, was also uh, in the AHA, uh, the, the uh, presidency of the AHA. So, OK, so this is always a good thing. So uh, typically you don't expect this kind of thing to come from that quarter necessarily in other words you think oh we're you know we're going to get a a maybe a more global view or you know something but uh yeah professor sweet uh, managed to you know kind of uh, step into a a snare um in talking about what or lamenting i guess we would say what he considers to be the unfortunate tide of presentism uh in contemporary historical writing that is academic uh, publications and and writing and and just uh, so we're not leaving anybody uh, scratching their head. Uh, presentism typically, right, would be the idea that uh, one is interpreting the past through the lens of present values, ideals, you know, through contemporary understandings uh, of the past, and therefore not being sufficiently sensitive to the ways in which, as the saying goes, the past is a foreign country. They mm-hmm. do things differently there. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think this is something that, uh, you know, we've we've talked about as well. It You know, there is an actual problem of presentism that exists. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's not exactly what what uh, what James Sweet talked about in his piece, which uh, was condemned very quickly to the extent that he had to almost immediately offer an author's note apology, uh, which is now affixed to the top of that of that piece, uh, which some people have called a groveling apology uh, in, in the end. But uh, what what specifically stood out to you as as objectionable in in his uh, his his little column there? 
Okay, so uh, he seemed to be suggesting, it, it's difficult to say because it really, in some ways, his piece struck me as, I think I told you, more like kind of a hot take. Yeah. You know, like when you're listening to sports talk radio mm -hmm. or something, you know, and, uh, you know, somebody has a kind of immediate reaction to something's going down. You know, you're not going to expect a hot take to have, what, a great deal of depth to it, necessarily. Yeah. It's usually, you know, uh, kind of emotive and, and you know, um, you know, responding in the in the in the heat of the moment to something um, that reflects maybe whatever kind of pet peeve or something like that. But it, but that's that's kind of how it struck me because what he seemed to be saying is this was triggered by a trip he took to West Africa to Ghana, mm -hmm. and Ghana, uh, the nation of West Africa that is home to what what has become something of a tourist destination. Uh, the Almina um, slave fortress that is that first established uh, by the Portuguese, what Josh in the 16th century, maybe. I think it might. I mean, I, I was just lecturing this the other day, uh, yesterday, literally. But I think the 15th century, uh, 1471 is when they first started setting up forts. Oh, already. Okay. Uh, so I don't know if Almina was was established that early, but um, you know, it's it's pretty yeah. early on that they're establishing that kind of attempt at a permanent presence. Yeah, I mean, they sort of worked their way down from yeah. the Senegal uh, River, you know, along the, the bulge of the West African continental line. And and yeah, so this is uh, then one, what becomes one of the sort of central slave trading ports in the history of the Atlantic uh, slave trade, which for three or four centuries then is responsible for more than, uh, you know, 12 million uh, enslaved African peoples being uh, forcibly brought to the Western hemisphere. Uh, and so uh, they have in Ghana have turned it into a kind of destination where history and memory uh, and, uh, uh, you know, sort of solace uh, for for those whose lives were in any way shaped or affected by uh, the, uh, the slave trading. Now, there's so much we could say about this, but what he seemed to seize upon was that that. Because for the, the, the Ghanese, you know, it's a kind of tourism opportunity. Yeah. In other words, it, it puts money into the revenues of, of Ghana's tourism uh, industry. And a great number, apparently, of those who choose to make uh, the trip to Ghana are uh, African-American people. Mm -hmm. That is, people coming from the United States, um, you know, looking to find a reconnection. In fact, uh, it was mentioned in our recent convocation that is the beginning of the year. Uh, meeting we have as a college that uh, members from our district, I, I'm not sure who exactly, I, I know I wasn't invited, but <laughs> uh, that uh, members from our own district, maybe administrators and varieties of people are going to Ghana uh, sometime soon. And I'm sure they'll go to, to Elmina. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So this is uh, for the Ghanese. I mean, you know, this is uh, part of a, a kind of tourism industry, but uh, his, James Sweets, uh, Grievance seemed to be that it had been turned into a, a, something of a, you know, a, a, if not exclusive place of sort of memory, uh, nevertheless, a, a kind of catered to place of memory for African-American people, particularly, that is, people from the United States, whereas uh, he seemed to suggest in historical terms I think the number he cited was less than 1% yeah. 
of those who were enslaved and passed through Elmina. Uh, this was a, a fortress, by the way, that, you know, the way it worked is that the Europeans brokered with African slave traders and generally would acquire enslaved captives where they would keep them, uh, you know, forcibly in this, this sort of fortress prison uh, until such time they could be prepared for uh, shipping, you know, to the West. And that less than, according to Sweet, less than 1%, of those who then were uh, held captive at Elmina ended up going to what would eventually become the United States. That is far greater numbers uh, went to other destinations in the um, Western Hemisphere, including Brazil, uh, which is the, the place of his scholarly uh, specialty, of course, uh, the West Indies uh, and um, you know other places. So, <clears throat> Okay, so I think that left you and I both kind of scratching our head because he he seemed to be suggesting that this uh, particularly African American focus on Elmina was somehow presentist that it mm -hmm. that it was designed to give contemporary black people in the United States a kind of identification with an ancestral place uh, and the crime of slave trading in West Africa, when in fact people from other nations in the Western hemisphere, black people, presumably he means would have what some maybe greater historical claim. Uh, yeah. It's really, really very strange. Um, yeah. I mean, part of the, part of the problem is that he seems to be the point of the piece seems to be to lament the presentism of the historical discipline. And I, I assume, cause he's ahead of the AJ, the American historical discipline, uh, and he's calling people out for the kind of identity politics that so many awful people tend to want to focus on. Um, you know, he mentions uh, the focus on racism, on gender, on capitalism, on uh, imperialism, which I guess he's suggesting get get pushed too far back in the past and then, you know, get in the way of what was actually happening at that moment. But his only example of presentism was a museum in West Africa put together by, uh, you know, the you know, in, in the country of Ghana for the purpose of, of bringing in tourists, which doesn't seem to actually be very relevant to the, the issue of the American historical discipline, much less the specific critique he's making was hugely um, insensitive, uh, kind of um, not, not well thought out. And, and as you said, like this, this kind of hot take version of it, he even says in his, his quote unquote groveling apology that the, the, the column was his quote, ham fisted attempt at provocation. So even he seems to agree with you <laughs> that that's what was going on here. Mm. Um, it, it it's yeah I, I use the term misguided. I mean it it's hard to to stress just how misguided it was. And the the impression it leaves also, I was thinking of of uh, cotton candy. You know, like if you buy some cotton candy, you can you can see it. You can see it's it it's a presence. It's physical. But as soon as you put it in your mouth, it's just disappears. Right, it turns into little mm. bits of of sugar. And that's what this thing felt like. Um, it was this hot take, ham-fisted attempt at provocation that never actually, uh, you know, got to a real argument that we could latch onto. I struggled, you know, reading it and then rereading it to try to figure out exactly what it is he was trying to argue, and never quite, uh, you know, got to that the 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 gooey center of what he was trying to say. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's a little elusive, I think, because uh, in the nature of a hot take, he he doesn't burden himself with any citations. You know, <laughs> he's no. not going to actually provide some, you know, some some actual, uh, you know, specific example 
right of something that we might uh, you know examine or or investigate. It was mostly an atmospheric. I know he he says at one point he goes do efforts to claim a usable American African American past. Excuse me. Do efforts to claim a usable African American past reify elements of American hegemony and exceptionalism? It's, uh, it's that maybe the low point. Maybe the low point of the piece. Yeah. Aim to dismantle. Now, n- never mind that. There's a lot of academic speak happening. You know, there he's sort of mixing the hot take with kind of you know with being professorial. You know, yeah. it's kind of a weird combination. But in effect, what what he's saying is this idea of a usable past, which often goes hand in hand with the charge of presentism, that you're only looking for something in the past that you can kind of co-opt or hijack to make some contemporary political point. You know, for Josh, from the time I was in graduate school and the phrase political correctness entered the national discourse, you know, and uh, until now, uh, there's been this sort of allegation, particularly by the right, you know, the political right, that in doing black history, for example, um, you know, let alone connecting uh, African-American history, say to African history, that all it really represents is a kind of political correctness, a kind of virtue signaling, identity politics, uh, there's other names for this. Yeah, right? I mean, I think they they assume it's like this historical affirmative action or something like that, right? That this yeah. is not, it's not deserving of this attention. It's only getting it because of yeah that that virtue signaling you you mentioned. Right, yeah. and yeah. so that's the hot take part of. It. But then you know, as an academic, he's weighing in saying, well, and then you know, historically, it's not even, it's not even correct. Most African American mm. people can't trace their ancestry to the Elmina Castle. You know, which is an extraordinary thing, you know, for him to suddenly, you know, pin it all on a kind of fine academic point there. Yeah. You know? Because he knows as well as anybody how not only African-American people, but, but Black peoples throughout the Western Hemisphere have essentially been orphaned by the historical narratives of the, of the Western nations. And, you know, in this case, in the United States, uh, we've said this before, right? I mean, if you're Irish American, Italian American, German American, you probably have an acute sense of where your people came from because these things are celebrated. Yeah, you know, we have mm. St. Patrick's Day, you know, yeah. Or, Columbus uh, Day, yeah, yeah, Columbus Day, any number of sort of Euro ethnic holidays, you know. But really, uh, you know, until Juneteenth, you know, and I mean, there really has been nothing for 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 Black people in this country that somehow connects to an ancestral African any fi- any kind of you know particular way i mean you and i have talked you know how within the 1960s it sort of became fashionable to to learn some swahili phrases well you know you know swahili is a is a kind of uh, what a kind of pidgin language uh, originally yeah. a merchant's language of east africa which really had little to do with the migrations of people from West Africa, you know, to, to, but, but it was that need to try to find some kind of ancestral identities. And and so, you know, that's been an important part of, of what black studies and black history has been about as it's matured over the last, oh, gee, 50, 60 years, you know? Um, And, and so he knows that, you Mm -hmm. know, and for him to make a kind of, uh, you know, kind of academic point about numbers, about aggregate numbers, you know, is is pretty disingenuous, I think. And he deserved to be called out for it, 
And then, you know, one, one <laughs> not satisfied with that, then he goes off to give other examples of presentism by citing the current Supreme Court of the United States, yeah. particularly the writings of Samuel Alito, right, and Clarence Thomas in the recent uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade, that is in the abortion case, uh, where they cherry picked uh, examples from history to try to bolster their point that there has been no traditional recognized right to abortion ever uh, in the annals of man or something. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, clearly that's present. So the unfortunate optic of this was to equate, you know, black people sincerely looking for an ancestral past that they've been denied in the narratives, the power narratives of the Western hemisphere, the national narratives, the nation state storytellings of the Western hemisphere, to equate that with the kind of cynical, you know, use of history by these current ideologues and religious zealots on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I was that was just about to to bring that that part in because that that's the part that stuck with me probably the most. As I said, a lot of it just kind of disappeared because it was so you know, kind of fact-free and evidence-free, but, um, but making that, that link is, I think where a lot of his, the pushback came from. And I always want to read from his apology, uh, just real quickly, because that's what he kind of responds to towards the end. And even his response is like, you know, it uses this kind of academic language to, I don't know, you know, in some ways not to enlighten, but to kind of confuse, he says, I am deeply sorry in my clumsy efforts to draw attention to methodological flaws in teleological presentism, which again, I have no idea. I mean, I know what that means. I have no sense that that's what he was trying to do. Nothing in his piece actually, <laughs> you know, relates to that, uh, to methodological flaws and teleological presentism. I left the impression that questions posed from absence, grief, memory, and resilience somehow matter less than those posed from positions of power. This absolutely is not true. It wasn't my intention to leave, intention to leave that impression, but my provocation completely missed the mark. So, you know, he's, he's, explicitly in that se that section uh he says i regret the way i've alienated some of my black colleagues and friends but then in the the actual apology it's so couched in this this kind of academic language that it it comes across also as you know he's apologizing while also trying to to justify his position which was still correct it was just poorly poorly stated i guess is what he's, <laughs> he's saying there that's kind of the non-apology apology isn't yeah yeah now, now the other problem with this is that it wasn't just that he he posted this, but it was absolutely hundred percent certain that some of the worst people were going to latch onto this and come to the defense of James Sweet, people who would never, you know, defend, uh, you know, a story of the African diaspora in, in in other occasions. Now have to leap to his defense, and so this morning we were greeted, and I I I, uh, um, you know, in my my our friendship, I sent this to you as well because I always like to get you stirred up before a podcast. But uh, old friend Brett Stevens in the New York Times decided to to weigh in, and it was predictably awful as well. well. I don't need to get into exactly what he said, but but you know this is the problem: is that that stuff like this that's you know so often posted without thinking through the logic of it can so easily be co be co opted um, for just another part of these culture wars we're constantly having to deal with. Um, probably the worst part of this all, though, um, when we combine, you know, our president of our of, of the AHA, uh, James Sweet, and then people like like Brett Stevens, is that there is an actual crisis in the historical discipline. And this issue of presentism, um, I don't know, what is it, 21st on the list of crises, 30th? 
150 or something like that. I just want to run through as we finish up, you know, this, this section a little bit or, or start getting to the end, some of, of the challenges we're actually facing. And maybe, you know, it'd be nice to have our president of our uh, academic main academic organization addressing instead of this fake issue that he decided to address. Um, I don't know if people know there's literal censorship going on both in our public schools and our universities all throughout the country um, to the point that a lot of professors uh, entered the fall semester um, not really even sure what they were allowed to teach in their classrooms anymore. I was able to find a um, a PowerPoint slide that was uh, that was shown to professors in the history department at North Florida University. And the slide is kind of a, um, what is it called? FAQ, like a frequently asked questions thing. And so here's the slide. It's called, uh, the title is Example, Civil Rights Movement. And then it's uh, referring to a hypothetical professor named Mr. Allen. Mr. Allen is now teaching a section on the civil rights movement discussing Martin Luther King Jr. Can he discuss Jim Crow laws and the effects they have on African-Americans? And it says, yes, Mr. Allen can show the connection between segregation and other instances of blatant racism under Jim Crow laws. The next question though, can Mr. Allen make a sweeping statement that white people were responsible for enacting these laws? No, Mr. Allen should avoid making any statement that assigns the blame for uh, for an act on any particular race. So there you go. This is what uh, you know our fellow uh, instructors, professors, academics are dealing with in their actual professional lives, having to listen to these horrific you know, PowerPoints, uh, presentations about what they're allowed to and not allowed to discuss in their classes. Um, that's a crisis, the, 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 the lack of academic freedom, which is, you know, creeping across the universities, the public schools of this country is an actual crisis that, uh, is worth addressing in the pages of our perspectives on history magazine. Another crisis, there are no jobs anymore for people who actually make it through graduate school to get their PhDs. Uh, maybe this is a slightly lesser crisis than the issue of um, of academic freedom, but it is absolutely a crisis. When I was uh, exiting grad school in about 2004, 2005, people were already lamenting the fact that there were no history jobs anymore. Um, for that cohort, though, the cohort I was part of, um, about 50% of us got tenure track jobs within four years of graduation. Um, that number for the last four years, so so people who graduated four years ago, only 20% have tenure track jobs at this moment. Um, for the first time, I'm finding that when I talk to students who want to be historians, I have to couch my recommendations in, are you sure you want to do this? Um, it's There's no jobs out there anymore. Um, maybe, you know, I still, particularly for younger students, I still encourage them to, to try to get their PhDs, to try to push forward in the discipline. But I'm always very clear and careful to say getting a PhD is, is no guarantee um, of getting a job. Um, you know, there's you, you might do all this work, go through all this effort, and there might not be any jobs out there for you. It's even worse when I talk to uh, older colleagues, you know, especially some of our adjuncts um, who are looking for ten tenure track jobs, um, you know, because it's, it's hard to say that somebody with a master's degree who wants a tenure track job should actually go for the PhD at this point, given that. Uh, there is a dearth of available jobs out there. Um, and then lastly, we'll end with this one. I didn't get to, you know, 30 different crises in history, but this might be the most serious one. Um, when Joe Biden wants advice from an historian, who does he call on? John Meacham. There you go. The true crisis. I, I almost sound godlike there. Did that sound godlike? <laughs> yep. 
Okay. Yep, it gives him the reverence he deserves. Okay. Yeah, John Meacham, the favorite historian of our current U.S. president. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, yeah. I I thought of the old line, you know, history has ninety nine problems, but <laughs> yeah. presentism is one of them. Or something, you know. Uh, uh -huh. At least as James uh, Sweet sort of clumsily tried to to make it out, I think I think you know presentism is presentism, um, you know, was always a thing. You know, we're calling the episode today the present is always in the past, and it's it's always uh, so interesting to me, you know. And it's often you know with this sort of cynical evocation of this, which is why it's disappointing when the AHA president you know mm -hmm. joins in that chorus, right? You know, the kind of cynical evoking of presentism to mean any interest in history that doesn't conform to the narrowly defined traditional view of history. Right. Right. So in in the, you know, in say in the United States, the, the standard version history uh, of the US as being a nation founded by you know, founding fathers, elite white yeah. uh, founding fathers, that is to suggest uh, that there is a, maybe another story we could tell, say, about the uh, the origins of the nation, that that somehow gets labeled presentism, you know? Yeah. And so really presentism just means anything that the, the what the diverges from that carefully guarded, you know, traditional script. And and we have a bit more to say about that here in a minute, but let me let me uh, chime in there with you because in the Times today uh, there was uh, also a piece uh, as fate would have it. Sometimes, Josh, I think Cleo just has a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because in today's New York Times is an article: uh, the first AP African American Studies class is coming this fall. Is the headline? Uh, of a story that tells about how the college board, that is the for-profit organization that runs the hustle we know as advanced placement uh, curriculum in this country, in the high schools of this country, has decided apparently magnanimously <laughs> to allow for an African-American history advanced placement course. Uh, what year is this, Josh? 2022? I forget. Uh, yeah. yeah our, Can't our, keep track. Yeah, I just want to double check that this that this uh, amounts to what a brave innovation mm -hmm. in the curriculum. Um, but I say Cleo has a wicked the muse of history. Cleo has a wicked sense of humor because this is exactly the sort of thing then that uh, not only you know J James Sweet seemed to kind of in it, even if inadvertently in tone, but certainly those as you pointed out. Uh, more familiar folks from the right wing, you know, latched on to, you know, to suggest, well, that that's a perfect example of present, you know, of you know, because you have what you have a Black Lives Matter movement contemporary, mm -hmm. you know, that now what now we have to have uh, Black History AP uh, courses, you know, this is just a, a trend a fashion, yeah. you know, a contemporary concern of the left, or something. Um, well, it's not that, okay, and I'm not about to defend the college board, which I, I think, you know, is uh, productive of so many ills uh, in our educational system, but, but you know, that's the way the thing is usually framed. So 
uh, here this article did point out, and it, and it supports what you're saying, you know, uh, a precarious time for the teaching of history, and in particular, Black history. Uh, and the, the writer of the piece said, at least, that this could clash with the political mood and even with laws in some states. Across the country this year, 36 states have introduced 137 bills seeking to restrict teaching, mainly mm -hmm. on race, but also on gender, uh, uh, up from 22 states and 52 or 54 bills last year. Uh, so at a time when a, a tremendous amount of political pressure is being brought, mostly, if not exclusively, by uh, you know, right-wing um, educational lobbying uh, groups to restrict, as you pointed out, the North Florida uh, University example, to restrict not only what can be said, but what can be covered, the kinds of courses that might be offered, et cetera, uh, that, you know, we're, we're, we're faced here with, you know, what, what can history then possibly mean? You know, I don't think that's overstating it. Do you? No, I think it's, it's absolutely right. And, you know, the, the, the thing that's so galling is there's a sense that, you know, when people, uh, uh, complain about presentism, they're, they're kind of dealing with an imagined past in their, in their own right. Cause at one point, as you suggested, at what point has presentism not been present in the historical, uh, you know, discipline? You've pointed out many times, for instance, how the Cold War just completely uh, impacted the way U.S. history was presented, particularly in the 50s and 60s and, and, and 70s. You can go back, you know, to any previous generation and find the way that contemporary politics determine the way, you know, history was taught, uh, researched and and presented. So, um I mean, we're not at a new moment here. I think what people are objecting to is the type of of issues that want people want to raise now. Uh, the type of history people want to get out there doesn't, as you said, fall in with that. Uh, you know, the, the 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 traditional views of of founders and great men, and you know, the narrative and 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 all those sorts of things we've been uh, critiquing and and pushing back against over the course of now fifty seven and a half episodes or so. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I make no mistake. Uh, we can invite, uh, devote rather uh, episodes to a serious discussion of the philosophy of history, right? And mm. and, and what anachronism is or presentism is, um, you know, in the sort of philosophy of history, the kind of meta history, you know, yeah. conversation. But that's not what any of this is about, is it, Josh? In other words, you know, that's why I was so disappointed again with James Sweet is that, you know, when we hear this sort of thing, it's it's never on that level of, you know, deeply considered examination of what it means to understand the past. Mm -hmm. It's always a kind of dog whistle shorthand uh, for those who want to see new stories entered into the curriculum, particularly the stories that are outside that carefully defended terrain of white nationalist history. Yep. Uh, and in this case, you know, Af African-American history being that. So as if to suggest, you know, that, that considering <laughs> the totality of the past 
by taking into account the lived experiences of people who did not see their faces end up chiseled under Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. You know, that that represents political correctness, that represents yeah. presentism, you know, a fad, a trend, a usable past or something, you know, is really nothing uh, other than a kind of uh, what a kind of defense of the of the of the homeland of history, you know, yeah. of white nationalism. Yeah, I mean, in, in, implicit in that idea is that, you know, the people who are making these arguments, you know, at least from the historical discipline are are saying, you know, that I'm doing history correctly. And you uh, often, you know, a younger generation of historians are doing it wrong, right? That you're the problem with history. And if you just kept doing the things like I'm doing it, then the discipline would be fine. Um, you know, going back to that Brett Stevens column, he's suggesting that the crisis of, you know, of the PhD programs, uh, which he correctly notes that was for the first time last year, fewer than a thousand PhDs were, were granted to historians. Um, I think he's suggesting, although he offers no evidence for this, that the reason for that is because of presentism, because of identity politics, because of all these things, when there's no reason to think that's the problem with history. It's the problem is that this overemphasis on STEM education, uh, producing, you know, generations of sociopaths who can do math and code computers, but can't think about humanity in any, any reasonable way. Um, you know, the our, our former uh, guest, Jeremy Best, uh, noted not that long ago that um, the graduate program at Iowa State history graduate program has been suspended at the same time that they built a vast new complex for their football team. Um, you know, the, these are these are actual problems that are out there um, that have nothing to do with maintaining the status quo of the the history discipline or that, you know, that um, that overwhelm, I think, the desire of often old white men to maintain the status quo within the history discipline to, uh, you know, shout, get off my lawn at, at new practitioners of, of the discipline and to get angry at people who want to try to find themselves right. in the historical past. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And, you know, I noted in that, uh, you know, Brett, Brett Stevens, who's, you know, reliable, if not nothing else. And, you know, <laughs> reducing again, the complexity of these issues down to some kind of, you know, uh, you know, dog dogma, you know, uh, that, that Stevens has already said that, you know, because he apologized, right, Jim Sweet yeah. apologized, uh, that uh, that he's a victim of cancel culture. <laughs> yes, of course. You know, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, uh, we're going to make a transition now, aren't we, uh, into uh, our next segment uh, of the episode where we consider, uh, I think, and, and I, I hope and I, and I promise more substantively this issue of, uh, of the present in the past and the past in the present and look at a pivotal moment now uh, when uh, the story changed. Uh, That is the story we tell ourselves about who we are here in the United States anyway, uh, about the nation's origin and birth. So you want to take us, uh, take us over the bridge, Josh? Let's do it. Trust in when it will go well. All right, as we head into segment two here, you're going to regale us with one of your, uh, it's Chris story time, and you're going to regale us with with um, a fascinating uh, story of, of uh, a black historian, Benjamin Quarles, 
who published a book in 1961 called The Negro in the American Revolution, which, as you're going to argue, marks this kind of turning point in the presentation of that revolution. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because what we can, I think, see here is a moment when the story changes, mm -hmm. you know, a definable moment. We can point to a book, we can point to a historian, we can point to evidence cited. Uh, I mean, we can get as granular as, as we want, right? But 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 the takeaway, you know, is that historical narratives have a certain life of their own. Yeah. Uh, and it's often the case that a particular historical narrative that is presented as being, let's say, mainstream, mm -hmm. you know, uh, let's say the kind of story that a, a guy like John Meacham, <laughs> yeah. and, and Meacham's not an academic uh, but nevertheless, uh, a popularizer of American history might present that's regarded somehow as mainstream. And that what happens then, you know, be because of that, you know, that prerogative of defining something as, as mainstream, whether it be in the academic press or the popular history press, that when someone tells a different story, often what's going to happen is that the defenders of that mainstream are going to claim as as we've been discussing today that 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 the departure that is that the counter story the new story uh is somehow illegitimate for being what political or yeah. <laughs> for being presentist i guess is that is that fair to say no, that's exactly right. Like the 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 implicit idea is that you know the old version is somehow apolitical, simply you know the record of truth culled from their deep archival research, whereas uh, this new story is somehow you know colored by the politics, the identity of of the uh, of the producer of of that research. Right, and it's not meant as a compliment. It's, it's <laughs> no, 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 right? not at all. You know, with a with a, maybe a term like revisionism. Yeah. You know, revisionism, as if, as if that were like you know COVID or something, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> something to be uh, you know immunized against. And Wear your mask. Quarantined, yeah. Um, but you know, as I'm going to suggest here, the mainstream that Benjamin Quarles was confronting, the mainstream which simply regarded itself unproblematically as history, mm -hmm. you know, real history. Um, was itself extraordinarily political. <laughs> of course, yeah. And you've made the point, you know, in past episodes, a brilliant point that it's that it's it's only the revision that gets tagged as political, never the sort of incumbent story, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> the status quo story is always presumed to be what sort of you know neutral and, yeah. and virtuous or something. Right. <laughs> The product of pure reason. Yes, exactly. And so, which makes it even then more difficult to challenge because it's like you're not just guilty, you know, a revision, you're guilty of, of sacrilege or something, mm -hmm. committed a, you know, a religious crime by taking on the sacred, you know, icons or something. Um, okay. So, yeah, in a book called The Negro and the American Revolution, the Black historian Benjamin Quarles, and by the way, it was published in, in 1961 now, and that'll be significant for reasons I'll tell you in a minute, uh, composed 200 pages of historical uh, revelation. Yeah, I don't call it revision. I call it revelation. Mm -hmm. And it was a single quiet sentence, Josh, found on the first page 
uh, that served as the book's bold thesis. Referring to the Black freedom fighter in the American Revolution, Quarles wrote, quote, he personified the goal of that freedom in whose name the struggle was waged. Mm. Now, you could read right over the top. First of all, I have to tell you a bit about Benjamin Quarles. Benjamin Quarles was what we might call a kind of distinguished scholar gentleman. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, this was a man, you know, habitually dressed in the kind of professorial tweed, you know, soft spoken, dignified in bearing. You know, one of his students who, who took his class at Morgan State University in Baltimore said he, he spoke in what seemed to be a kind of modulated whisper. So you're always on the edge of your seat, <laughs> your ears peeled to hear what he was saying. You know, uh, this was not a, a hair on fire, radical, you know, shouting, uh, you know, epithets at the establishment or something. <laughs> you know, uh, And it's partly because, as we'll see, of the Jim Crow standard in the history profession at the time, that there was a kind of double burden on Black academic historians because they were already facing uh, essentially, you know, a, a common assumption in the among the white professoriate that, that no Black historian could ever be objective about his own history, about right. that is to say about Black history. Uh, and this drew upon all kinds of, you know, racial tropes about the excitability of black people or something. And so you had historians like Benjamin Quarles who were determined to not feed that stereotype. And it's worth saying that he's slightly older, generationally speaking, than the the generation that would follow a black scholars who are radicalized, right, right. in the 1960s by the you know global um, anti uh, you know colonial uh, you know independence movements globally, um, who are radicalized by black power, etc. You know, in other words, uh, Benjamin Quarles was still a bit of the old school that way. When he mm -hmm. went to the University of Wisconsin, which is the leading grad school for history in the United States um, in the 1930s, you know, he was basically the only black student there. And his professor, his, his, his mentor, was a guy named uh, William Hesseltine, a native Virginian, who was given over to using racial epithets. Jesus. You no, know, casually using racial epithets at the time. And and when when Quarles told him uh, that he wanted to do a, a dissertation, doctoral dissertation on uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, Hesseldine's first reaction was, oh, no, this you know, there, there's no there's no there's not even a field at that point, you know, in, in higher education, academia. Uh, known as black history, you know, and so this 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 isn't justified marriage. But because Hesseltine at the time, according to the story, was working on a his own biography of Ulysses S. Grant, and he knew that Frederick Douglass is certainly, you know, arguably the premier black leader of the, of the United States in the nineteenth century. That Douglass had a kind of ongoing relationship, you know, with with Grant as a kind of uh, you know political advisor. He he relented and told Quarles, okay, you can do your dissertation on Frederick Douglass because he figured he could use some of the research, right, 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 his own book, you know. So this, I mean, this is the story. You know, you talk about the American Historical Association. Benjamin Quarles is coming up at a time when the American Historical Review, the journal of of that uh, you know leading association, you know, has not published. An essay by a black scholar since 
uh, I think it was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in the first decade of the 20th century mm. and won't actually publish one until, mm, I want to say the late 1960s, maybe, if not 1970s. Uh, but you get the idea, you know, for mm. the better Decades. part of the 20th century. Yeah, mm -hmm. there, there's no uh, no black scholars are getting any kind of, um, you know, publication in the mainline professional historical journals of the, uh, you know, of the, of the country. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's the world Benjamin Quarles is coming up, the Jim Crow world of the United States and the Jim Crow world of the historical profession of the United States. So when I say he writes with a kind of understated, you know, quality, that is not to say, therefore, that he's not absolutely blowing the doors off the narrative. It's right. just that you wouldn't note it by the adjectives, you know. Mm -hmm. He's not raising the toxin of alarm with his rhetoric. He's just methodically, and I would even uh, argue relentlessly, particularly in this book, the, the Negro and the American Revolution, relentlessly pounding the narrative with evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence and it's extraordinary now for me as a u.s is trying to go back and and read this book because on the one it is so understated but it's also such a just a box of dynamite you know when you consider what was going on at the time now think of the title the negro in the american revolution no narrative of america's origin event, which is what the American Revolution had come to be, right, in the standard version history of the nation. No mainline narrative had ever taken seriously that this was a story involving anyone other than whom. White, you know, white folks, and, and I mean, probably even more so that particular class of white folks who become, you know, the quote unquote founders of, of the country, right? Exactly. Exactly. And in the kind of filial pietistic way, the founding fathers mm -hmm. of the country, freedom, nationhood uh, was a gift provided by these biblical fathers, you know, to the rest of us or something. And, uh, you know, I mean, that was the filial pietistic narrative. And, and so that had been challenged, that narrative had been challenged in the early part of the 20th century by so-called progressive historians, um, historians like Charles Beard, who began to take on the mythology of the founding fathers, but they did so not in order to introduce non-white actors into the story, but merely to show that the founding fathers, you know, were after all mere mortals, yeah. <laughs> material interests, even selfish material interests and political ambitions, and to sort of bring them down from the Olympian heights, you know, of the myth makers, right? Um, but as we're going to see after World War II, those progressive historians are going to be um, uh, basically challenged so that you get the reinforcing of what I would call that consensus history myth uh, mythology, that the United States was a nation born of, of liberty, imbued with liberty, a liberty presented to them by beneficent white founders. Okay, so it's into this you know, this self-satisfied narrative, you might say, that Benjamin Quarles is going to emerge now. And his book, The Negro and the American Revolution, 1961, is going to be a kind of opening gambit. Now, let me tell you the end of the story first, because really, 
from that time until today's New York Times, which announced that there will be finally an AP Black history class mm-hmm. in the nation's high schools. You know, how long is that, Josh? 1961 to 2022? Well, 60, 60 years. Yeah, 61 years. In other words, I guess what that might tell us about Benjamin Quarles' book, even though it was this box of narrative dynamite, as I'm describing it, it didn't ultimately succeed in doing what? Changing the narrative, right? It just sat there. Because um, I, I know how this stuff ends up working, right? It just sits there, gets very little attention, and then it takes you know somebody like you digging it up again to, to realize how revolutionary it was in terms of, of reframing the narrative. Yeah. And I, you know, look, I, I mean, Benjamin Quarles, a distinguished historian. When I was coming up in grad school in the 80s, it was uh, another Black historian, John Hope Franklin, that had been sort of adopted by what I'd call the white establishment of U.S. history. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hope Franklin himself, a, a Black historian, a Harvard PhD, you know, a, a remarkable scholar, was almost as if you could only have one black scholar, you right. know, be the go-to or something. Because Benjamin Quarles, I always wondered about Quarles. You know, why didn't I see more of him at the conferences? Or, you know, why wasn't he more often in the AHA perspectives? Or, you know, he, he never was present. John Hope uh, Franklin was president of AHA, but not Ben Quarles, you know. And so I, I, I didn't quite understand where it all fit. Well, he stayed at the traditionally black college at Morgan State University. Um, I think deliberately he didn't seek to, what, become the kind of accepted black figure in the mainstream of white historical writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, I don't have any of his own statements on this, but I'm just... I'm saying this by, you know, by evidence of what he actually did with his career. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but but his work is all out there, right? So, okay, so here's what I want to say about it in our segment today. So he's writing, it, it, you know, with the, in the depth of the Cold War. But two things are actually happening in 1961. The Cold War, which I suggest, and we'll come back to in a second, but also he's sitting on the cusp of, of a moment of Black liberation. I mean, ever since World War II, um, you know, the double V campaign of A. Philip Randolph and others uh, in, uh, you know, most people remember Jackie Robinson as the guy who broke the color line in baseball. Right. But 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 Jackie Robinson was also a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army who was court martialed in World War II for not for refusing to sit in the back of a segregated bus while on base in a, a Texas. Right. Yeah. So a lot of the civil rights impetus that we later associate, say, with Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, the 1950s and 60s will actually germinate in World War II uh, as the, uh, you know, the segregation policies of the U.S. military are being confronted. Uh, so so that's when when Quarles is, you know, basically in graduate school as a young professor. So his own life and work is going to be informed, certainly. And then when he writes uh, and publishes The Negro and the American Revolution, 1961, again, he's on the cusp of what? A global movement for Black liberation. You know, within a couple of years, you're going to get Nelson Mandela sentenced to life in prison in South Africa. You're going to get Martin Luther King's, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail. You're going to get any number of what colonial independence moves. We're speaking of Ghana earlier, right? Does Ghana become 
independent 1960 no uh, 56 i want to say 57 maybe it's the first sub-saharan african state yeah, yeah it, it's with it's a near nearly contemporary with this book right mm. you know, and others will follow um and and then african nationalist leaders like patrice lumumba and you know yeah. others. so okay so this is a, a moment you know pregnant with significance we might say you know for black identity black liberation and so in the midst of that, here's this quiet book that is equally radical, I would argue, just not ostentatiously headline grabbing uh, in its in its manner. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's the uh, you know, it's the uh, the Cold War thing that I think really helps us appreciate, you know, the um, sort of contemporary context. Of, of U.S. history when Quarles comes out uh, with this book. Uh, yeah, he engaged at a time when American presidents and historians alike held aloft the standard version history of the nation as a patriotic prop in the nation's Cold War boast to be what? The defender of the free world, right? That was the kind of political tagline of America in the early days of the Cold War. Uh, as what, as opposed to the Soviet Union, which was seen as what the, uh, the evil empire, right? Yeah, the, yeah, it was, it was Bush would later call it, right? Sort of the yeah. edifice of what godless communism. Uh. <laughs> okay. So, in the ideological sphere, in other words, the standard version history of the United States becomes part and parcel of that larger propaganda war of the Cold War, and in service of that boast leading white historians belabored or labored on behalf of America's Cold War cause. And, you know, in retrospect, it seems now clear that their historical labors were just as colored by race as would be that of Benjamin Quarles. In that what? Their, their histories, the white Cold War historians who did histories of the U.S., including the history of the, uh, the American Revolution, um, will stick almost exclusively with a cast of, you know, white central characters. Now, as you can search high and low through those histories written in the Cold War years by many of the leading historians of, of uh, you know, academia at the time, you know, professors like, uh, you know, Ivy League professor like Bernard Balin of Harvard and Edmund Morgan of Yale, these guys are writing you know, the generation defining books about the origins of the United States. In fact, you know, James Sweet was complaining, right, Josh, that not enough grad students are going into colonial history, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of early modern history. Well, actually, during the Cold War, you get a revival, a kind of renaissance in writing about the American Revolution, because in that larger propaganda war, it was imperative for these stories to go back to America's founding, you know, to, to, to reach into that historical moment and say, see, unlike the Soviet Union, the United States was born of liberty, you know, and that kind right. of freedom narrative then becomes part of America's larger sort of propaganda claim, right, in the, in the Cold War. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you're just reminding me because, you know, even world history comes out of that Cold War context. It, it kind of develops out of area studies, um, and area studies are, are kind of post-World War II disciplines that are really, you know, meant to encourage people to study the strategic, the areas of strategic interest for the United States during the Cold War. So this stuff is just, you know, it's again, as opposed to what James Sweet is saying about, you know, the current problems of presentism, 
this this has always been there, right? That these these American strategic or ideological interests have been built into the discipline for as far back yeah. as we can, as as there's been a discipline, I, I would say. Yeah, yeah, and and though they never acknowledge that, it's never no, self-acknowledge. I mean, Benjamin uh, or uh, Bernard Palin never says, "Well, you know, I'm trying to prop up the claims of the U.S. to be the defender of the free world in its uh, ideological battle with the, you know, Soviet Union." Um, nor does anyone ever say, well, gee, that's awfully white history. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's only when Benjamin Quarles then bothers to publish uh, The Negro and the American Revolution that somehow it's immediately framed as what? As black history. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As if doing what we would call now white history didn't need a disclaimer, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just um, history, yeah. Yeah, it was. And that was the other thing. It was just self-evidently history. Mm -hmm. White scholars wrote adoring and filial pietistic histories of the nation's birth and its revolution through an almost exclusively white lens, giving nearly all of the storytelling attention to those they called founding fathers, who, not surprisingly, were white men they credited with bestowing to posterity a legacy of enlightened liberty, civic virtue, and inspired patriotism, all of which was, of course, useful in the Cold War. Looking back on the key moments of the American Revolution, these mainstream white scholars were convinced that they had found, quote, slam dunk evidence, as one writer put it, that America was founded in a crucible of liberty with white founding fathers united in consensus on the bedrock ideals of liberty. Wow, they just they found that. They discovered that. It's crazy. It's crazy yeah. they found the exact thing they were looking for, huh? Yeah, remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but again, never advertising itself that way, just yeah. simply advertising itself as, in some ultimate sense, history. Mm -hmm. Now, if we consider what was actually going on at the time, you know, in the in the sort of McCarthy era of the 1950s, you know, um, we can start to appreciate just how political all this stuff really was. You know, at a time when America was washed over by waves of anti-communist politics known as the, the Red Scare, mm -hmm. with a witch hunt climate of McCarthyism, you know, producing both loyalty O's and career-ending blacklists, consensus narrative uh, that we're describing here, the standard version history, stood as its own gospel of red, white, and blue conformity and loyalty. The communist hunting committees of Congress and state legislatures turn their attention to higher education. Not unlike today, Josh, in the example you gave of, of you know, Northern Florida, for example, university, seeking to sniff out elements of disloyalty in the political affairs and writings of academics. Instead of defending the honored ground of academic freedom, many leading schools sought to put themselves above suspicion and supported Red Scare tactics like loyalty oaths. You know, Josh, when I was a teaching assistant at University of California in the 1980s, I had to sign a loyalty oath. Mm -hmm. It, it was insane, still there. Man. That's insane. Yeah. Declassified FBI files show that some colleges cooperated with the agencies rapidly, uh, that is the FBI's rapidly anti-communist investigations, by providing information about suspected faculty members' political activities and viewpoints. A new American studies program at Yale University, where Edmund Morgan was, in the 1950s, produced some of the defining consensus narratives of the American Revolution. But in the the uh, the brochure for the program, the uh, 
the Yale uh, American Studies Department declared itself, quote, a positive and affirmative method of meeting the threat of communism. Jesus. In 1952, 28 California colleges and universities cooperated with the Committee on Un-American Activities, part of the state legislature's effort to root out uh, suspected subversives from the higher education system. According to one estimate, more than 100 dismissals or resignations were carried out during the first year, with another 200 new appointments rescinded. Quote, a chill spread across the intellectual landscape, writes uh, Jonathan Weiner. Avoiding controversy became prudent. Criticism of American institutions or practices could endanger one's job. Faculty members played it safe, avoiding topics in their teaching and research that might rouse the red hunters. Oh, so it sounds, yeah. a, sounds yeah. a little familiar, doesn't it? Well, I was going to say this. This is this is wild because this makes it seem like there was cancel culture in the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> I, I was told this was a modern phenomenon that uh, that only you know was invented by like sophomores at Oberlin, you know, in the last <laughs> three years. No. Yeah, go figure, man. <laughs> Only their their version of cancel meant you were fired. Literally, and had an FBI file. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not that you just got criticized on Twitter. Uh, yeah, criticized on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> the true canceling <laughs> into the maelstrom of Cold War loyalty wars, Josh, and post-war Black liberation movements stepped our man Benjamin Arthur. Quarrels. As I say, a rather quiet and fastidious black scholar straight from the segregated bus of America's history profession. Now, there's so much we might say about Benjamin Quarles, but I want to I want to get to the point uh, that we, you know, we're making in the episode today about the present, the past, the past, the present. I would suggest it's virtually impossible <laughs> to successfully argue any longer that all that defining work by white historians in the 1950s and 60s, which is sometimes called the consensus or neo-Whig school of historical writing, mostly because they seemed to finally resolve the issue about who was America really? What was the American political tradition? What were the political origins of this country? Seemed to resolve it so conclusively that, that there mm -hmm. only could be a consensus as to it being the story, a freedom story, right? Of yeah. liberty born of the genius of the founding fathers. Am I exaggerating? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's ultimately the takeaway, okay? But you can't any longer, I think, seriously suggest then that that basic mainstream view of American history wasn't itself ultimately, fundamentally, you know, conclusively wrapped up in the politics of the Cold War. In other words, that it was just as political, just as presentist mm -hmm. in its own way as that which critics suggest now, you know, the Black AP U.S. history class is, you know, or, or you know, any other divergent narrative that wishes to take the story in any other direction. And that's exactly what Quarles had to do, only in a kind of gaslighting. I mean, because look, if they're not admitting it and you're doing it, then they get to claim one. 
that you're a subversive, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you're departing from the norm, that you're being political. And the reason I call that gaslighting is because, as we say, they're not acknowledging their own political agendas. They're yeah. making it seem as if they're not political at all. Yeah, Simply this is reminding me. Yeah, sorry. Um because one of our, our previous, uh, you know, maybe titles for the episode was was rescuing history from the nation. And then it didn't, you know, we kind right. of settled on the other title. But this is reminding me why we thought of that in the first place, because, you know, that almost sounds like what what Benjamin Quarles is trying to do here. Right. Because what that consensus history does is it's very specifically trying to tell a narrative that that fits into this national idea of what, you know, the U.S. was and what it what it is. Right. That it fits into that Cold War context, but also just fits into that larger sense of you know national belonging national pride national you know patriotism and 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 love for country um and that therefore any effort to tell a story that maybe you know includes people who are not rich white men uh you know of the late 18th early 19th century um represents some kind of you know clash with the truth or something like that but you know again i I think what it sounds like benjamin quarles is trying to do is is trying to tell a history that's not just there to serve national narratives, national pride, uh, and, and those sorts of things, but but actually give voice to to the voiceless who were involved in that story but have never had a had, had a place in it. Oh yeah, very well said. Um that that's exactly what he's doing. And he's being very cagey about it because on the one hand he doesn't want to give you know his potential critics in this kind of gaslit <laughs> this gaslighting profession, right? <laughs> Give them any uh, unnecessary or additional ammunition to dismiss him, you know? So not only is he writing in a kind of apparently understated way, but, you know, he's following the kind of procedural or, or you know, the, sort of following the protocol, you know, for mainstream academic uh, history writers. In other words, he's starting to do what no Black historians, not even Carter G. Woodson, who's seen as the father of Black history, had done. And he's going to start getting things published in the mainstream academic journals. Uh, He stays teaching at Morgan State, which is a traditionally Black college. But when he applies for publication, you know, submits his articles, he's submitting them like to the William and Mary Quarterly Mm -hmm. in, 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 in Virginia, which is you know, you, you would be hard pressed to find a more sort of blue blood. I was thinking that, yeah. Anglo historical, you know, journal at the time than the William and Mary Quarterly. Uh, and they publish his stuff. You know, he gets it. He's going to get into the journal that, that will become the Journal of American History. It was still at the time the Mississippi Valley Historical Review, which, yes, was just as segregated as its name sounds. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to get an article there. Can I ask you, so when, when you, at that point, when you submitted, I mean, would the people reading your submission know, would, would they have known he was black or was that, you know, was it assumed Did they, I mean, I guess he has to say he's, he's teaching at Morgan state, which would, uh, I guess, suggest that he, he's black, but, right. um, you know, are you able to get, get into these things because like, you know, you're not submitting a photograph with it or, or it, is it, is it, was it known, you know, who he was, where he came from right. and, like who showed up on the blind date kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's a great question. I wish we had, you know, Professor Quarles here. He died in 1996. Uh, mm-hmm. To ask him, I bet he would have no end of stories about that kind of thing. Right. You know, uh, I, I think because of the tenor of the times, you know, being where he was teaching, he had been at Dillard University in New Orleans, which is also a black college. Mm-hmm. And, 
Shaw University in North Carolina and, and then Morgan State, that, that, that probably would have informed his uh, color um, and, uh, and for other reasons. Uh, yeah, I think by and large, the editors who are accepting his journals for publication probably knew that. Right. But he's writing, he's in effect staying in his lane because he's mm -hmm. only writing about now what is seen as black history. But black history is starting to get the white imprimatur of approval. So, for example, like you see uh, Berkeley, uh, Professor Kenneth Stamp, a white historian, is going to write um, the, the a book on slavery in the 1950s, uh, The Peculiar Institution, which is mm -hmm. going to give now sort of for the first time kind of white approval to doing black history. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, as so long as the white first, person doing it. Yes. As if, if prominent white historians start dabbling in something called, which it's time they call Negro history, mm. um, then it's okay to start looking at, you know, other potential contributions from somebody like Benjamin Quarles. And because, I mean, his pedigree was impeccable. You know, he's, right. he's a Wisconsin PhD, a Heseltine student, et cetera. You know, and then the quality of his work. I mean, he's an extraordinary scholar, right? You know, mm -hmm. and so he's going to button down, you know, every possible criticism of his research. You know, he's got to be, again, almost twice as good. I mean, he has a double burden as a black scholar doing black history, given the racial, you know, the grain of racial bias. He's going to have to be twice as good, right, yeah. as, as the young white professor publishing Things he's going to have to pass critical muster of a of a, a profession that doesn't really believe what he's doing is legitimate. Yeah, or, or only just starting to believe that, right? All right, so that but that was very uh, cagey because by breaking through a wall of segregation, you know, one of the most distinguished academic presses, Quarles knew his work would gain a wider readership than black scholars had ever before. You know, like when W. E. B. Du Bois published in 1935, Black Reconstruction. You know, it was mostly ignored, you know, by the academic press, you know, or by the academic, you know, reviewers, uh, or, or maybe briefly noted and then, you know, more or less ignored. Uh, you know, you had journals like the Journal of Negro History, Carter Woodson's journal, but that was seen as a kind of what? A kind of, um, I don't know, Jim Crow, you know, side stage of, you know, this yeah, a journal for them, right? Not yeah, not narrow field or something outside the reach of mainstream right. academia or something. So yeah, so that was very smart, very cagey of Quarles, because he says, look, if I can get an audience, then I have a chance of addressing the big narratives, you know, the big main stage narratives. And so what he does in this book, look, in placing black lives at the center of the American Revolution, Quarles offered a stunning counter story. One that showed the Cold War consensus narrative of the SVH to be seriously deficient. That deficiency was not readily apparent from the style so much of what Quarles had to say, but just, uh, I mean, look, when, when Du Bois wrote his book on Black Reconstruction, I mean, he pulled no punches. You know, he referred to uh, the Black worker uh, Du Bois had, right, instead of slaves. He didn't call them slaves. He called them the black worker in a kind of vaguely Marxist vein, right? He referred to the Civil War as the general strike, <laughs> you know? He's writing, Du Bois is pulling no punches. He's writing in that sort of, as I say, kind of leftist, vaguely Marxist vein. But but you don't see that with Quarles. 
You know, Quarles isn't using the rhetorical flourish. He's simply, again, jackhammering the evidence in page after page of revelatory history about what actually happened in the American Revolution, placing Black lives at the center of the narrative. One of the things that makes his his work quietly radical, however, is, is that Quarles is going to point out something that even previous Black writers of history had been reticent to do, I think. Uh, and that was to acknowledge one of the most basic facts of Black participation in the American Revolution. And that was the fact that the majority of Black people who invested their lives in the cause of the American Revolution did so not on the Patriot side, but on the side of the British. Mm -hmm. And that was for the simple fact, as he says at the beginning, that the British very early on, beginning in 1775, you think, you know, the Declaration of Independence isn't until 1776, but the military conflict that we call the War of Independence begins in the spring, the previous year of 1775. And almost immediately, the British, and I'm talking about the British, because they're all British. I mean, you know, we, yeah, right, right, right. we want to retrofit this thing as Americans versus Britain. They were all British, right? But, but I'm doing this just as a kind of shorthand, you know, we'll say loyalists versus patriots, right? Mm -hmm. that, that the British military which is appealing now also to uh, British loyalists who by different estimates may have been as many as a third of white colonists living at the time remain loyal to Great Britain who don't, don't support or join the Patriot side. And, and the majority now of, of black men and also black women who support the war in some guise do so on the British side because the British are offering essentially, and what we might call an amnesty, right, Josh? In other mm -hmm. words, beginning, uh, and it didn't actually, uh, Dunmore's proclamation is the most famous in, in November of 75, but even before that, the British General Howe had made it known as the, the, the British Army was in New England after Lexington conquered and, and the Battle of Bunker Hill in the spring of 75, that any enslaved black people who made their way to British lines would be given uh, essentially protection or amnesty from re-enslavement. Uh, and there's going to be a, a succession of these policy formulations right on through Dunmore's proclamation in November, which comes out of Virginia. He's the royal governor of Virginia who just says, I will take any fleeing enslaved persons, I will take them into the ranks of British protection. And actually, he goes so far as to form a, a military regiment, he calls the, the Ethiopian, or he'll arm those, uh, you know, able-bodied white or black uh, males into military service. Uh, and then you're going to have a succession of uh, you know, sort of similar kinds of proclamations by the British. So, the numbers have never been clear. Uh, historians have, have done a remarkable job of trying to, to track down something uh, like, you know, um, solid uh, 
quantified, you know, assessments of, of the numbers here. But keep in mind, at the time of the, the American Revolution, there were over 500,000 enslaved people in the mm -hmm. colonies, right? And that in the end, it's probably going to never be known, you know, precisely how many, but the numbers run in certainly in more than uh, double digit, you know, 10,000, 20,000 uh, who actually then become part of the British war effort. I mean, right. I'm talking about the formal British military war effort during the revolution. Now, this had never been acknowledged because it was always wondered, you know, well, it seemed like black people weren't patriotic. In other words, were <laughs> enslaved black people not patriotic? Yeah, what's wrong with them? Supporting their enslavers? <laughs> now, when you said you said 10,000, is that actually under arms or just supporting the war effort in? Uh, most of them worked in sort of logistical support. Some, yeah. there were military companies formed. Um, one was called the Black Black Pioneers, for example. Um, the Ethiopian Regiment was mm -hmm. another. But many of them were wagoners, uh, you know, carpenters. They built defensive fortifications. They were cooks and launderers and all manner of civilian uh, kind of support. Right. right. Um, so, OK, so uh, this is an awkward fact for previous generations because they don't yes, want it is as not and now in the cold war can uh -huh. you imagine you know when when jagger hoover the director of the fbi is already you know spreading misinformation about martin luther king being a communist can you imagine you know what it took for benjamin quarles to say well <laughs> you know most black people chose the british side meaning the formerly british side not the patriot side mm -hmm. for the simple fact that if you were enslaved, it wasn't the patriots who were offering you freedom. Yeah, you know, it was it was the British army, and so they made the most basic decision based on what consideration, the consideration that was supposed to define the patriot cause, which was the consideration for liberty. Mm -hmm. Now, the I love irony in history, don't you? That's great. But you know, when he says. In that first, you know, page of his book, that it was the black freedom fighter. Those are my words, freedom fighter. He would have said Negro. Uh, that quote personified the goal of that freedom, and whose name the struggle was waged. Are you starting to see how incredibly subversive that sentence is? Yeah, quietly subversive, right? Oh my gosh, he's not saying it was Thomas Jefferson or George Washington that personified the freedom struggle of the American revolution. He's saying it was those enslaved black men and women, many of them up to that point anonymous, who made the ultimate existential choice to risk their lives by supporting a British military imperative that would lead to their actual freedom. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about taxation without representation. We're not talking about elite whites complaining about being taxed too much. We're talking about enslaved people who had to cross the existential divide, risking their lives and almost certain grievous punishment by their enslavers to declare themselves now in support of this British military cause. What greater stand for freedom could a, could a person take, Josh? No, and it's 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 interesting because 
you know, going back to James Sweet just for a second, we, we probably talked about it too much, but you know, he, he, we didn't mention this, I don't think, but he uses the 1619 project as one of his, his other examples of presentism. Mm. But in, in some ways, what Benjamin Quarles is saying here, you know, is, um, is anticipating some of the arguments that, that 1619 would make, but he's doing it, you know, 60 years earlier, roughly, yes. um, you know, in, in a different present and then making similar arguments. So it, it does undermine some of the, these, particular critiques of 1619 that this is just you know of the moment um part of contemporary identity politics when you've got somebody making again not the same but but anticipating those kind of arguments yeah yeah decades and, and decades when he earlier. so scrupulous in 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 citing his source material and, and the irony a lot of this he's getting out of the same source material that often been used by white historians to argue for that filial pietistic founding mm -hmm. father's version of the american revolution it's just that they never bothered to pay attention in the correspondence, say, of a James Madison or George Washington to the comments those men made about these other issues. They regarded those issues, these white historians did as peripheral, as not part of the main story. But now here's Benjamin Quarles saying, well, it's right here. Here's where James Madison said. Here's where George Washington said, you know, uh, something about this issue of black enslaved black people fleeing their plantations. I mean, all the founding fathers who were slave owners, which is to say a majority of the founding fathers, <laughs> uh, actually saw, particularly those in Virginia and Carolinas, saw some of their um, enslaved laborers flee. Jefferson, Washington, Madison, all of them, really, because of the British uh, offers of, of amnesty and sanctuary. Uh, and so they were grievous, uh, you know, at the end of the war, when when the British uh, surrender after the Battle of Yorktown and, and agree to evacuate, you know, the, no one has bigger grievances than these founding fathers who are basically, you know, suing the British to return their slaves to them. Mm -hmm. You the know, property, right? They probably yeah. talked about it in property terms, right? Right. Most of them were uh, indebted to British creditors you know, uh, and and thus saw this as a kind of financial negotiation that might allow them to get out of their debt, saying, well, if you're not going to return our slaves to us, which the British didn't, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're looking for something like honor, you know, uh, in, 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 you know, in the face of treachery, because there was this old uh, bromide that somehow the British had taken all these unfortunate, you know, enslaved black people and sold them into slavery in West, uh, the West Indies. But that's not true. You know, the remarkable historical work that's been done, not only by Quarles, but ever since following on Quarles' lead to show that the British were pretty good at their word. You know, even though they lost the war, ultimately, they took with them when they left most of those uh, enslaved people, men and women, and their children, in many cases, whole families, to places uh, like Nova Scotia, back to London. Ultimately, the British are going to create a you know, colony in West Africa called Sierra Leone. Now, I'm not saying that the, the stories were uniformly, therefore, happy endings. But if you're looking for people who acted as scandals, you know, it's the founding fathers, right, who are insisting that these formerly enslaved people be returned to them. And in the case of Jefferson, not only does he get uh, about five individuals back, right, who had fled, 
who he accused of disloyalty, by the way. These were yeah, enslaved people who Jefferson said were disloyal for having accepted the British offer for freedom. This coming from the architect of American freedom. Mm -hmm. oh, forgive me if you lose track of the ironies here, right? You know, but I'm keeping a list, does, yeah. He does get them back in two cases. Uh, uh, two, three of the five were grievously ill from smallpox mm -hmm. and, and died, including a 10-year-old child uh, contracted while they were in the British camp. Uh, there was a great um, epidemic of smallpox at the time. And because, and you'll, this will, here's another irony for you, because uh, many Americans were more reluctant to do smallpox inoculation. Yeah. <laughs> the smallpox spread like wildfire throughout many of these camps, you know, whereas like the British were pretty well inoculated themselves. Uh, okay, well, anyway, that's a side issue. Uh, the other two, Jefferson sells off as punishment. Mm -hmm. The father of American liberty, you know, sells off two of his enslaved laborers because they had chosen liberty over slavery. Now, in the Cold War age of the blacklist and loyalty oath, Quarles refused to concede that black people were derelict in their revolutionary duty or guilty of disloyalty by siding with the British. Instead, he turned those simple S, uh, standard version binaries, uh, you know, like patriot versus Tory, us versus them, continentals versus redcoats, loyalty versus disloyalty. All of these were quite popular in the Cold War. Yeah. I turned them all on their heads. Without resorting to inflammatory language or torching his prose with militant appeal, he presented page after page of historical evidence detailing the commitment of Black people to the revolution's defining cause of liberty, wherever and with whomever it was available. When he wrote in the preface that, quote, thousands of Negroes gained their freedom by joining his majesty's forces, he threw open wide a door of inquiry that has been most had been mostly blocked shut in the uh, standard version history storytelling. And the irony was unmistakable. In the age of the Declaration of Independence, it was the British Army and not the Founding Fathers who issued the first emancipation of enslaved people. And it was enslaved Black people themselves who made good on the revolution's promise of freedom by exercising their inherent self-sovereignty in escaping slavery principle which was famously evoked as the natural right of every man in the Declaration of Independence. Um, okay, so, and look, and he, I mean, this is, this makes up three chapters in his book, but he goes on to show that many others, not a majority of those um, Black men and women, uh, most of whom had been enslaved, some who had been free at the time of the revolution, also, as best they could, tried to support the patriot cause when it advantaged them toward having greater civil rights or gaining freedom. Because one of the things that's going to happen is a kind of latent effort, particularly in some of the northern states, to begin uh, using, first of all, there's a dreadful manpower shortage. George Washington was always decrying the fact that most of the white uh, soldiers who were enlisted um, when AWOL returned to their farms, wouldn't stay with the fight, etc. And so even Washington will begin allowing, in limited ways, some Black troops into what was the Continental Army. It'll be the last time, by the way, there's an integrated, racially integrated American Army until when? Until the Korean War. War. That's yeah. right. Um, and, and so, yeah, Quarles is going to go on a show. It wasn't uh, exclusively on the British side. 
uh, that you get limited efforts by what we'd call progressives, I guess, and those who were desperate for manpower and labor like Washington to allow uh, for a certain limited participation by black, both black troops and black laborers in the uh, Patriot cause. But that was almost entirely response to what the British were already doing. And, and Quarles doesn't try to make the British out to be, you know, what, um, proto-abolition or something. It's clear the British were doing this for their own reason as well, right? They were trying to incite kind of, uh, if not slave insurrection, at least a kind of, uh, you know, uh, injecting a note, uh, discordant note into the lives of of their enemy, you know, into, mm -hmm. that is into the Patriot cause. So we don't, we don't even have to anoint the British with some kind of... Uh, you know, progressive or saintly standing. This, this is a story about what black people did <laughs> right. in the revolution. And when you read Quarles' book, what you realize is that that revolution could not have gone the way it did without this element of black lives and their participation. If you want to know why black lives matter in the American revolution, it's because whether it be the dreadful manpower shortage on the continental side, the patriot side, or the use uh, and, and emancipation of Black people by the British, that's what congeals ultimately after the war into something like a proto-abolitionist movement. I mean, you just couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. Now, certain consensus Cold War historians like Gordon Wood will say that's all to the credit then of slave owners like Jefferson and Washington, that it was their far-seeing vision that would allow for ultimately what abolitionism and whatnot and that's completely bollocks josh it, well it, that yeah to me that's like the greatest example of presentism right that you're you're essentially using yes. what you want out of these people to to turn them into these figures that i don't think there's any evidence that they actually were right absolutely absolutely because you know after the war for example when Washington, George Washington, during his uh, two terms as, as president, is uh, in the, what was then the national capital of Philadelphia, he's preparing to return to Mount Vernon near the end of his second term. Two of his enslaved laborers, his chief uh, chef uh, and his wife's principal uh, handmaiden, a woman by the name of Oni Judge, who served Martha Washington, they will both flee mm -hmm. and refuse to go back to Mount Vernon. Now, in the case of Oni Judge, she'll make her way to New Hampshire through a kind of what we would call later a kind of underground railroad, you know, of supporters, mostly black supporters in Philadelphia and, and in New England. But what does George Washington do? He, for two years, spares no expense to try to get Oni Judge, his formerly enslaved female black labor, taken back by force to Mount Vernon and re-enslaved. Mm -hmm. He does it quietly because he understands it's a bad optic. And by the way, those who would say, oh, this is political correctness, they thought about everything dif different. No, not true. George Washington, he knew it was a scoundrel move. He knew it wouldn't play well in the press. I mean, he these were guys who stood for a revolutionary commitment to liberty. They were not unaware, <laughs> you know, of the inherent contradiction now. And so, yes, he tried to get Oni Judge back. He never successfully, by the way. She lived until 1848 and even gave a, a, an interview in the late 1840s to the Liberator Garrison's uh, abolitionist newspaper in which she recalled why she fled from Washington's enslavement. 
And the answer was pretty much what Benjamin Quarles said it was. She didn't want to be a slave. Yeah, shocking, huh? <laughs> shocking, right? But what these stories and what Benjamin Quarles is going to open up is the possibility of a new scholarship, a possibility of a new narrative that says that the American Revolution wasn't just that filial, pietistic, nearly mythical storytelling of white, beneficent white founding fathers who brought the gift of freedom you know, over time to the nation they had created. This was a story of all kinds of folks, free and not free, of black and white, of European and not European, of Native American. And, and, and so the scholarship that Quarles helps give birth to will make its way ultimately into the academic main stream, if not into the curriculum of America's high schools uh, until now. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you know, when I'm coming up through, you know, historians like Gary Nash of UCLA, you know, are doing these incredible histories that follow then on the story uh, that uh, Benjamin Quarles, you know, helped to make possible. And it was in a review I just came across the other day in 2006, uh, an Australian historian by the name of Cassandra Pibus, who's done this in 2006, this incredible book on, on the individuals now enslaved most of them who joined with the British cause and what eventually happened to them, including a figure by the name of Harry Washington. Now guess who, who is the slaver was George Washington, right? Wow, a guy yeah. born in Africa, enslaved by George Washington, who finds his freedom, flees to freedom, flees to the, flees to the British side during the war, uh, joins the British military effort after the war, evacuates with the British to Nova Scotia, to the colony there, uh, eventually finds his way to London uh, and, and, and ultimately to Sierra Leone, the African colony. So in the, in the span of one man's life, born in Africa, enslaved in North America, lives in London, uh, eventually repatriated in a sense, right, to West Africa. These are the stories that Cassandra Pibus tells. And in reviewing her book, uh, the uh, historian David Waldstriker said, you know, they speak of a paradigm uh, being shifted. The paradigm is shifted. So that was in, in academia, that the story of the American Revolution could never again be that simple Cold War story of, uh, you know, germinal white freedom brought by filial you know, pietistic founding fathers, you know, that it could never, you couldn't put that genie back in the bottle, at least not honestly. And that was a review in 2006. Now it's 2022. And just in today's New York Times, a story about, uh, you know, Black history, African-American history being included uh, in the AP school curriculum. Tell me some, tell me some, what the stamp like? Tell me something. What a cook like, tell me some. I put the whole city on, tell me something. Tell me something. Tell me something. All right, that was fantastic, Chris. I, I, I love listening to that. And uh, hopefully our, our, our listeners got a lot out of that too. It, it does speak so much to, to presentism, to paradigm shifting, to new ways of looking at the past. And, and I think what it also illustrates is how, you know, one version of the story can so easily be swept aside once you you know notice the details that have been ignored um or missed previously and that that relates to something i've been doing lately I, I we talked about how i've been working on this textbook and i i came across this story that um i've been telling 
I told it in all my classes. Somehow. I worked in all my classes last week somehow, um, because to, to me, it's just like a, a simple little story that that fundamentally shifts how we're, we, we need to think about that kind of, you know, pre, we'll say the 15th century world, a time in which, you know, the traditional world history narrative is that this is the time of European oceanic exploration or, or you know, these uh, these maritime, you know, efforts or, or projects. And, and that's usually presented as like, this is the time we get to talk about, you know, the stuff Europeans were doing and, and those stories of, of, you know, Portuguese navigation of, of Spanish navigation of the French and the British and the Dutch falling along, you know, usually gets, gets set up as something kind of unique to, to Europe. And so the story I came across um, is one that I've somehow never seen before, um, but it relates to probably one of the most famous figures of, of pre-modern um, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And that's the famous king of, or, or emperor, or Mansa, in fact, of Mali, uh, Mansa Musa, who's a, 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 an individual that I think, you know, kind of uh, was obscure for, for a long time in, in kind of discussions of world history, but has been, um, you know, kind of plucked out as, as an example and a, as a way of creating a more representative world history by, by including this, this great African figure. And so Mansa Musa, if people don't know, is this uh, king in Mali, who in about 1324 decides to go on a pilgrimage. And um, I'm sorry, not a pilgrimage, but the pilgrimage, the Hajj, to Mecca to carry out his, his uh, you know, you know, one of his uh, duties as a, as a good Muslim. And the, the journey itself becomes legendary, um, really legendary in the world outside of Sub-Saharan Africa. Because he brings with him, according to some accounts, between 12,000 and 20,000 people with him. He also brings literal tons and tons and tons of gold with him, uh, as Mali was a center of gold production and the gold trade for really the entire world at that time. But what's interesting about the story, because uh, Mansa Musa's story is, is better known now than it used to, is that when he arrives in Cairo, where he makes the biggest splash, um, he ends up having these conversations with local notables. And one of these conversations with the governor of Cairo, Cairo is under the Mamluk Sultanate at the time. And so this is the, uh, the, the, the governor of, of the city of Cairo, but um, Mansa Musa was asked by this governor, how he came to power. What's the story of, of how you came to power. And he uh, goes into this story of his, his predecessor. And so um, I, this, this, this story came to me from a historian named Michael Gomez, um, who wrote a, wrote a book called African dominion. And so, I don't know how well known the story is, but he's kind of, you know, at least for me, uncovered the story. And so this is what he's, this is what Mansa Musa notes in his response to the governor. He says, the king, um, who we know as Mohammed Q, who was my predecessor, did not believe that it was impossible to discover the furthest limits of the Atlantic Ocean and wished vehemently to do so. All right. So he's now suggesting, you know, against any kind of, we have no evidence of this anywhere else. No indication of this in African oral in West African oral traditions. No archaeological evidence of this. Um, this has never been mentioned in any other source before. But Mansa Musa is saying that his predecessor Muhammad Q became very interested in discovering the furthest limits of the Atlantic Ocean. And so this is what Muhammad Q did. He decided to pursue that question of of you know the limits of the, of the Atlantic Ocean. Sometime you know maybe in like the first decade of the the 14th century. He readied fleets of ships to go off into the Atlantic. Uh, again, these source, this source is so uh, specific 
it's so limited in what it's saying. We don't know, you know, what the purpose of this would be specifically. Uh, Gomez suggests that this might have been an attempt by Mohammed Q to gain direct access to the Mediterranean world of trade. Um, Mali was a very rich empire, certainly, but it was very dependent upon merchants crossing the Sahara to come to Mali to trade for the gold. And so potentially what this is, is an attempt to you know go right to where the markets are, go right to the Mediterranean. It did not go well, though. Uh, Muhammad Q's initial fleet was, of, uh, according to Mansa Musa, 300 ships, of which 299 of them disappeared into the ocean. So one ship returns, led by a captain who eventually recounted the fate of the other 299 ships. And he says, quote, O Sultan, this is now the captain being quoted, O Sultan, we traveled for a long time until there appeared in the open sea, as it were, a river with a powerful current. The other ships went on ahead, but when they reached that place, they did not return. As for me, I went about it once and did not enter that river. I want to come back to that in a second, but that's that's our account of this voyage, uh, this initial voyage. Muhammad Q, though, was not deterred by this disaster of his first fleet and decided that the problem with the first fleet is it wasn't large enough, apparently. So uh, Mansa describes then that the Sultan got ready 2,000 ships, a thousand for himself and the men whom he took with him, and a thousand for water and provisions. He left me to deputize for him and embarked on the Atlantic Ocean with his men. That was the last we saw of him and all those who were with him. And so I became king in my own right. Now, there's a story of Mansa Musa coming to power, um, but it includes, you know, not the typical story of, of you know, valor on the battlefield, but disaster on the open seas by a Malian Navy who had never before been mentioned in the historical record. So I, what, what do you think of that? Because I, I I told you that story, or I sent you my my uh, attempt to describe the story, and, and you said you hadn't heard of it, you had never heard that account either. Yeah, I don't think I had, uh, but I was delighted. My yeah, goodness. Right. I mean, because it, it none of it is especially surprising. Mm -hmm. it, it just hadn't been accounted for. In other words, right. everything we do know about those River Kingdom empires, uh, Niger River empires, you know, suggests that they had absolutely had the kind of wherewithal and resources to pull off just about any kind of reconnaissance they wanted. I mean, you know, the, the example you're giving of, of Mansa Musa famously making the pilgrimage, you know, and 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 just lavishing everyone along the way with these untold stores of gold. And, yeah. you know, it was enough to get him put right on the center of, of the uh, the only real map of Europe at the time, the Catalan Atlas, yeah. you know, it's the richest man in the world. Mm -hmm. But when you, the European exploration narratives come along, right? You know, all of that gets erased all of it gets silenced the only people doing any exploring you know christopher columbus and the gang were european uh you know white european catholic and uh, protestant <laughs> explorers right so it, that that beginning of the narrative of erasing african history um and this uh is so lovely because it it forms that much fuller picture that you know you've dedicated your teaching career to and i have uh, as well of of uh, you know the history without borders, right? Yeah, and you know I think it's so cool because you know this is the week where you know I'm talking about you know basically early globalization, the ways the in which the world was uh, you know became connected, the disconnected parts of the world became connected, and you know central to that story is you know European caravels crossed the Atlantic or 
you know, pushing down the West Coast, of the Atlantic. And it's an important story. There's no there's no reason to to, you know, diminish the importance of that story. But it also can sometimes overwhelm the fact that, you know, across the world in a relatively similar time span, there are lots of ambitious states and societies who, who saw in the ocean, who saw in the seas a chance for their own expansion, for their own, you know, new opportunities. And so we have the, you know, the very famous example at this point of of Chinese, you know, uh, naval operations in the Indian Ocean, like these massive attempts to send huge fleets into the Indian Ocean for for purposes we're not totally clear on. But, you know, we can imagine to, you know, uh, you know, uh, show the glory and majesty of the Ming Dynasty or, or you know, engage in some kind of imperial, um, you know, uh, project of, of, of some sort uh, as well. So that story is pretty well known. And it's also pretty well known that the Chinese ultimately you know, stopped. And about 30 years in, they just pulled back those fleets and they stopped being directly engaged, at least from the state level in Indian Ocean activity. Um, but there's other stories we can tell, you know, not just kind of the famous stories of of these well-known states. That Mali story, I think, is really important because, you know, in, in many ways, if you're just kind of thinking about at least Mansa Musa's version of what Muhammad Q was intending, it doesn't sound that different than, you know, what somebody like Prince Henry of Portugal was attempting to do as well. You know, this is somebody who, in his mind, at least as far as we know, saw himself as, as having reached the limit of his power as the third son of the king. And for him, you know, ocean-going navigation was the path towards prosperity and wealth and, and power and all the things he wanted more of. Um, you know, the Chinese example I already gave you, but you could also look at this is around the same time, um, a little bit after the Malian expeditions is when we see the first voyages of the Polynesians that eventually reach, uh, you know, um, what we now call New Zealand. That's happening around 1350. Right? We don't have direct records of of what, um, you know, what the motives were, what the incentives were, what was driving that expansion. But we do know that, you know, many boats and, and hundreds of people crossed huge portions of, of the Pacific Ocean and made its way to one of the more uh you know, isolated land masses uh, on the planet. And so I think it's just useful as we do world history, as you talk about this stuff, to um, to try to, you know, create this this sense that that anything is possible and, and it's possible anywhere, right? That lots of people are motivated by lots of the same things. And, you know, what we can do through that kind of, of these kind of stories is we can kind of take away the extraordinary aspects of of European behavior, which is almost always presented as somehow, you know, more innovative, more innovative, more adventurous, more, you know, based on curiosity and, and all these other things, and see it as just part of a, a, a general trend in the same basic era, basically the same century of peoples and societies and states spread all the way from, you know, the, the South Pacific to Southern China to, you know, West Africa to, to Western Europe who were ultimately seeking similar things, right? Which is that for them, the ocean was a place of opportunity and was worth spending resources, spending revenue, spending time, spending effort to try to discover those opportunities found in the open seas. Yeah, I agree. That's really well said. And I think, you know what, I'd add another uh, point there, you know, for why we need to do this, because certain questions get answered that have always been left unanswered, mm -hmm. you know, or even unacknowledged. Uh, you know, there's this phenomenon in, in war, I'm, I'm told, called the acoustic shadow, where sometimes 
those who are closest to the action can't hear in the same way the, the reports of guns and cannon as those farther away can, as if the sound goes right above their heads, you know. And when you read certain narratives, you, you can become aware of the acoustic shadow only when you get those sources filled in by yeah. the other reports from farther away. So, for example, something like, you know, the, the Malian, um, you know, empire and, and its great wealth and sophistication, you know, to answer, why are the Portuguese mucking around so much in West Africa? Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not, they're not exploring per se. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to overcome navigational challenges, yeah, right. but they know that there's wealth there because they mm -hmm. own their own Catalan Atlas shows that there's wealth there. There's a gold bearer on a gold throne with a golden scepter, you know, right, right. it's black. Right. And so they understand there's a, there's a material interest there. And doesn't that help fill something in about why they were doing this in the first place? And in the same way, I go back to the Benjamin Quarles thing, you know, the Declaration of Independence, Josh, it wasn't seen typically by contemporaries or even for many years after as that kind of transcendent freedom document. We think of it today as the charter, the near scriptural document, uh, all men are created equal, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It was seen at the time as a kind of pragmatic secessionist document justifying separation from it. That's what, what white revolutionaries were most concerned about. You know who turns it into, you know, who makes it that kind of transcendent freedom statement? It's black folk living at the time of the revolution right. who understand that the words Jefferson had penned have universal application. Right. In you a know? way that he didn't himself probably. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you get black preachers and the early vanguard of black abolitionists, people like Lemuel Hayes and others who are insisting that what Jefferson has uh, written applies to this more universal cause, not just a narrow political interest, but a universal cause of human rights. That's what radicalizes the Declaration. But you don't get that unless you just read past it, unless you see the stories of the people that Benjamin Quarles and others since uh, have written about. So yeah, it fills in all kinds of meaning for us, I think. Yeah, and it just, it just you know, getting back to, to the kind of larger subject, um, you know, what we kind of see there is that there's an assumption by the establishment, whether that's the historical establishment or the kind of political establishment that that their the, the claims they are making, which sound universal or couch in universal terms are actually particular, right? They don't actually, apply to everybody. Um, and it takes, you know, uh, black folks in, in the early Republic, or it takes, you know, people like Benjamin Quarles to point out, and this is actually not universal or it's not being used universally. We actually want this thing, whether it's, you know, the nation or the historical discipline to actually, you know, apply to everybody, right. To speak for everybody, to get everybody's voices heard in, 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 in some way. So, you know, yeah. contra, James Sweet, Contra, Brett yeah. Stevens, contrast, Contra, all these these figures, um, you know, the present is always in the past. Yeah, and it's not political correctness, right? No. It's not, you know, revisionism, you know, yeah. as some, you know, uh, kind of uh, awful contagion. It's history, but it's history opened up wide, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely.
Well, this has been fun. We, we, we're doing our best to try to get these out monthly. Uh, you know, our schedules only allow for for so much time to do this, but um, always a blast to, to get back in front of the microphone and talk to you, Chris, and, and talk to our audience. So we will try to do it again in the next month. Take care, everyone. Nope.